Well, good morning to everybody on this Memorial Day weekend. We're glad you're here with us. My name is Kevin Dillbeck. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to kick off. It's an exciting Sunday because not just we get to hear from God, but we're also wrapping up our, our series in 2 Timothy, uh, that if you've been joining with us in the Bible studies and the sermon series, it's been going all along through this whole time. And, uh, and so it's been a great book to meet with God and to see what He has for us. And I want to talk a little bit about risk as we... Uh, as we finish this book here. And so in a group this size, my guess is there's a lot of different levels of risk tolerance and willingness to endure certain kinds of risks, right? And so some of us with our uh, recreational activities may be a little crazier than others. Y'all know, many of y'all know who Greg Shahub is. He likes to race dirt bikes uh, for fun. That's a little different risk tolerance that I might have at this stage of my life. Uh, some of you, when it comes to money, it's a very different tolerance of risk and what you're willing to do with it. Uh, even as we move into fireworks season, I think about my childhood was filled with, especially around the 4th of July, it was, uh, what could I blow up with an M80, right? What could I shoot with a bottle rocket? We would have wars in our neighborhood. Roman candles seemed like a joyous thing to shoot at people. And now I'm like, that's a little crazy. And I don't know if I want to let my kids do those kind of things anymore. And so what, as I've grown older, my risk tolerance has changed a little bit. I think about sports. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I didn't mind throwing my body around. Literally my senior year of college, just in intramural sports, all right, I broke my collarbone three times. Same collarbone, two times in the same spot, one time in a different spot. And, uh, and so my risk tolerance there was pretty high. It looked like fun. I would jump in and do it. When I got into my 30s, I started to be a little bit more hesitant, right? I, I love playing soccer, and so if there's a, what we call a 50-50 ball, you're going to tackle somebody, I start easing up a little bit, right? When I moved here, uh, I was in my 30s, and uh, I was playing soccer with a bunch of guys on uh, indoor soccer. And sure enough, this is how I learned that my, my risk tolerance was going to start easing up. 50-50 ball, met a guy's head, split open my eye. I'm like, all right. This stuff start, can't, happen, can't happen anymore at my age. And now in my 40s, I'm coaching my oldest son in soccer. I see them out playing, and I'm thinking, I can still get out there and mix it up with them. And I'm like, I want to keep my ACL. I don't want my Achilles to rupture. I'm going to maybe head back and just kick in some balls to them. And uh, the reality is what's changing is my risk tolerance, right? And for all of us, it's, it becomes down to the question of life is what risk are we willing to bear? Is it worth it in the end? And so all of us kind of have different lenses that we evaluate risk for, through to decide if it's worth it or not. Well, here we've come to the end of our series on the Apostle Paul's last letter to Timothy. Timothy was a leader that he had developed and influenced and he's been preparing Timothy all along with this letter to take the baton of ministry from him and carry on his ministry. And this final section in it has a story that captures the bigger picture, I think, of this mission Paul is calling Timothy to. And so all along, through all the whole letter, he's been kind of reminding Timothy what this mission is. And he's been preparing him, hey, listen, this mission is going to come with great risk. And he's, in a sense, in this last story, we get a picture of all the whole message of Timothy, of what Paul wants to get across to him. And so we're going to see how we process risk and understand it is going to greatly influence what we're willing to bear in this life. And so the big picture summary I want you to have, and we, we see it on the screen here, and this is what I'm praying for us this morning, is that we can risk because we have a God who will rescue. That we can risk in our everyday life not stupid risks like shooting a Roman candle at somebody's head. I'm talking about risks that come associated with the mission God's given us. We can risk because God will rescue. And what we learn about risk and rescue 
is going to help the most daring of us endure these risks, but also the most risk averse uh, from us engage these risks as well. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and uh, we just want to thank you that you're a God who cares about us, that you're a God who wants to meet with us. Every one of us walk in this morning and every person gathering in a church that preaches your gospel in this city is walking in this morning broken and needy. And sometimes it's even difficult for us to just think about pursuing you, much less being engaged in the mission you've called us to. But God, you take great delight in taking broken people, forgiving them, and then partnering with them in the mission to take this message to others and to love others. Even as we hear more about uh, our call to missional hospitality, God, we, uh, you delight in taking people like us, broken, don't have it all together, and calling us to partner with you to show the generous and thoughtful love of Jesus. And you do this not just here in Danville, you do it all over the world, uh, as we heard from God this morning. And so, God, what I ask is that would you meet us here? We come in weary, we come in, uh, some of us come in weary, some of us come in broken, some of us come in uh, needy in particular areas of our lives, some of us come in excited to hear from you. No matter where we are at coming in this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would make your word come alive in our hearts. We need you. Amen. So we're going to begin with our mission requires risk. And so up to this point in Paul's letter, Tim, uh, Paul has clearly stated the mission of Timothy. So what I want to do, I want to recap a little bit for us this mission. Uh, at, at different stages, we've seen it. And you'll have references there. We won't read them all. These are just summaries of how we've seen the mission described that Paul gave to Timothy. Timothy had a particular context in the ancient Roman Empire. We have a particular context. This mission is the same for us as well. It will look different than it did for Timothy, but this is his call to us this morning. So let's review some of these things, and let's think about the risk that comes with them. And so one of them is the mission is described as guarding the good deposit of the gospel. This gospel in every culture and every generation wants to water it down in different ways. And so our call as a church, our call as a people is to guard this good deposit, this treasure of the gospel that it would retain its fullness of what Christ came to do for us. But guess what? That means the gospel isn't always going to be popular. It wasn't in the Roman Empire, and it's not now. And there's going to be aspects of the gospel in every given culture that are offensive, that don't seem too great or too exciting. And so if you as a person, you as a church want to guard this good deposit, it's going to come with risk of being marginalized, being misunderstood, being not liked because of what we believe. And it was the same way in the Roman Empire. They thought the Christians were cannibalists because they talked about the Lord's Supper. They thought they were polytheists in some, in some levels. or No, actually, sorry, atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods that they believed in. They were ridiculed. When the Romans would lose in a war, they blamed the Christians for it. They didn't like the gospel that the Christians held to. And it's the same way in our culture today. So if we're going to guard the good deposit, it will bear risk that comes with it. The mission involves investing in leaders. Anybody who's in a profession that involves trying to build up the next generation knows very well the risk associated with that. And a lot of those just bear on our own lives. To invest in people, costs, it costs money, it costs time, it costs energy. You, they, they might turn on you. They might not follow through with what you're asking them to do. But Paul was clear that, Timothy, if you're going to carry out this mission, you've got to invest in leaders. And that's going to come with inherent risk. Some of those leaders in Timothy's church would turn on them. Many of you have been in leadership a very long time, have experienced the betrayal of leadership and what that looks like. 
This mission has been described as doing good to people. Some of the phrases that we had come out as we were studying uh, this letter set up, were to be set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work, that we have the word to complete us and equip us for every good work. Now, there, there's one we think, there should be no risk in doing good works to others, right? Well, they might not describe them as good, but at the bare minimum, doing good works to others will cost you. You have risk that comes on your life because you're willing to do good to others. Maybe that's cost financially to you. It's a cost of energy. It's a cost in your mind to have to think about it. It's a cost of your time. There's risk that comes with doing good works. The mission involves sharing God's word with others. It's been all over here. We, we've seen that the ones that you invest in must be to teach others. We're called to preach the word, do the work of, work of evangelists. Even in our passage read this morning, uh, this gospel being fully proclaimed to the Gentiles. It involves sharing God's word with others. That comes with risk. That risk looks different now, and we'll talk about this later, uh, now for us than it did for Paul and Timothy, but there's risk there. There's risk there of marginalization, persecution, being misunderstood, being faced with questions you don't have the answer to. All those kinds of things come with that. We also saw that the mission involves dealing gently and patiently with opponents. Just even embedded in that that, that mission there of dealing with opponents shows the risk that comes with that, that it is not easy. And so all along, Paul has reminded Timothy that this mission will bring hardship, and so you're going to have to take grace, great risk if you want to accept and fulfill this mission. And then what we see in verse 14 is kind of this concluding story. I don't know exactly why Paul put it in there, but for us, it serves as a reminder of everything he's talked, to, talked about up to this point, both what the mission is what the risk that you bear in engaging this mission and who God is in the midst of it. So let's take a look at this here. Verse 14, it'll be on, your, on the screen as well. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And so the first thing we see is this guy named Alexander the coppersmith. And anytime you see names in the Bible, you want to know who they are, more about their identity. And, uh, and there's different speculation. There's different Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament. And best case, we, we don't really know his full identity and who he is. Uh, some would say that in Paul references in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, an Alexander that was actually excommunicated from their church. And it could be someone like that. Several scholars suggest that he is likely the one that uh, turned Paul in or, or informed on Paul in such a way that it led to the second arrest in Rome and where he is now. And what's clear from this story is that this mission brought Paul into situations of real risk and real harm. And the risk became a reality, right? When Paul entered back into Rome, there was the risk that he would be arrested for this message that he proclaimed. And that risk actually became a reality. It, there was real harm. It says, Paul says, he did me great harm. He strongly opposed our message. And so one of the clear ways that Paul's was harmed was this imprisonment in Rome. Now, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with our justice system. There are obviously a lot of things in any society where their justice system isn't great or the prison system. But our prison system at its core does try to uphold some ideals of treating prisoners humanely. And if you've ever visited uh, a prison, you, you will see some of the measures of that, right? Um, in my, one of my previous jobs, I had to visit clients who were incarcerated. And uh, in, in engaging with them, not one of them feared for their life in prison. 
Uh, now, there were other problems that happened in prison, but most of them had clean water, food, all these kinds of things. And that what they, uh, these clients I visited, obviously what was clear to them, they didn't have freedom and they were missing a lot of the comforts and there were a lot of those things taken away from them. And even walking in, checking in, meeting with them, leaving, I'm sober by the reality of that lack of freedom. But that, the lack of freedom is maybe the only thing that prisoners in Rome would have had in common with prisoners in today's world. And I want to just refresh you a little bit with what it would have been like for Paul to experience this great harm, to understand a little bit about it. He was likely changed in the dark, right? Obviously, there was no central electricity of any sort, but he wouldn't have been in a, in, in a situation that had even a lot of daylight. And so he, most of the time, he would have been chained in the dark. There would have been not much access to clean water and little food. If you would have water and food while you were in prison, and if it was to be remotely nourishing or remotely clean, it would become because someone cared about you to meet you there, to come and bring that to you. There would have been nothing to keep his wounds from getting healed. Most likely, when he was arrested, he was flogged or beaten. And with those wounds left for them to fester. And so there would have been no treatment of those kinds of things. And so you can imagine in a dark prison with lots of those kind of things and no toilet system, no any of those kinds of, you can imagine the stench, right? You can imagine the filth. You can imagine the pains of wounds that didn't receive care. You can imagine the stigma of being on trial in front of everyone to be looked at as a criminal. This is the great harm that he bore in that moment. And so he risked that when he went in, and that risk actually became a reality. So he experienced the worst thing that could have happened in that moment of his ministry in Rome, and this was the great harm for him. Yet he was faithful. Paul had this perspective in prison, and he was actually able to seize this moment to live out the mission despite the mission, the very thing that put him in prison. Look, let's look clearly again at 16 and 17. He says, At my first offense, no one came... Uh, to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so what's going on here is that not only, and we'll, we'll talk for a minute about that at first defense, but Paul in this moment in prison, the very thing that got him there is the very thing he's still faithful to. And that's using this moment to teach about the generous and thoughtful love of Jesus and to show that to others. And he mentions this phrase, at my first defense. This is likely a reference to him at this preliminary investigation that would precede a formal trial in Rome. And it was the custom for someone that if I was on trial in Rome, that someone would come and join me in that and be it there at my defense. And he says here, he seems to have been left alone in that, that all the Roman Christians wouldn't come to his aid there. And what's interesting, he doesn't hold it against them. He's not bitter towards them. But he's also not in this sappy way, nice to everybody. He understands that there's been real evil done to him. And his mindset is that there's a God who will bring justice upon those like Alexander that have put him in this situation. But his heart and his mind towards the Christians who for weakness or fear were unwilling to stand by him isn't one of bitterness or shame, but one of a posture of forgiveness. And so you, you had to think in that moment, that's an amazing perspective. So instead of shrinking back or being bitter, or wallowing in self-pity, Paul leveraged this moment to speak again clearly the message for which he was in prison. So how was Paul not only willing to take this risk on when he entered the, entered the city, but then to be willing to actually, that risk to become a reality and face that harm? 
How could he do this and maintain this courage and compassion despite being imprisoned and abandoned? Is he just this superhero Christian who's just, we're just all got to resign ourselves, we'll never have that kind of courage and compassion? Is he just someone who is like a Greg Shalhou that has just a higher risk tolerance than a Kevin Dilbeck? I think what we're going to see here is actually nothing of those things. It's all focused on who God is for him in that moment. He is enabled to risk because of an experience that God will rescue. And so we're going to transition to that point now. God will rescue. What will we, and what's interesting, if I was to ask any of you, and we didn't read this passage and we didn't know anything about Paul, and I was to ask you, what would rescue look like for the Apostle Paul in this moment? Almost hands down, everyone would say rescue would be release from imprisonment. But that's not the rescue God provides. And that's not the rescue that Paul was thinking about either. He would take that rescue, there's no doubt in my mind, but that's not what he was impending because if you read a few verses earlier in verse 6 of this chapter 4, he knew his departure was coming. Not the departure from prison, but departure from this life. He knew he would not be leaving this prison, but he would die in this prison. But yet he speaks of God's rescue. And so this is very, it's a paradigm shift for us here. But I want us to see clearly what, what, what was Paul rescued from and how did that rescue come. And I think if we put ourselves in the situation that Paul was in, we can probably think through what our mindset would be like or what the temptation of our mindset would be like in that, in that kind of scenario. If we did not expect release from prison to happen, what are some of the things that could come from our, in our minds? If it wasn't only the physical danger we were thinking about, what else would be there? It would be the weariness of faith, right? Despair. Bitterness, certainly, right? That people would leave you and abandon you? That God has left you and abandoned you seemingly in prison here when you're trying to do work for him? Could we see ourselves moving to this bitterness towards God? Yeah, I think so. Self-pity? Look at me. I'm the only one who really cares about this faith in Rome. Even Timothy's shrinking back. I've got to write him to try and encourage him. I think we all could find ourselves being there. And I think these are the kind of things that Paul was clearly rescued from. Not because he was super spiritual or had particular temperament, but because who God is. Let's look here now. How did that rescue come? And it came in the form of two ways. And we see it in verses 17 and 18. It came, one, in God's presence with him in that moment, and two, a future hope of being with God free from sin and suffering. Let's look at 17 and 18 again here. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The lion's mouth there is, is a, there was actually Christians that were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. That wouldn't be the situation for Paul because he was a Roman citizen and that was a kind of a no-go. You didn't do that to Roman sentences. It was kind of more a, a, a phrase it meant from danger. In verse 18 here, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so first there, the rescue in the form of God's presence with him. But the Lord, it says in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So Paul's rescue was that he was upheld by God in this moment. God met him this moment in such a real way that he was strengthened, not weakened. Others had left him, God stood by him. And so in that moment, that would have potential for great fear, for weakness, for pulling back, for despair, for self-pity, for bitterness. God strengthened him. The rescue came and that he was not taken to that dark place, but he was upheld in that moment by God's very presence. That's the power of God's presence. And isn't this the very promise you see all throughout the Bible? Matthew 28 uh, one of the capstone passages, 
the call to go make disciples of all nations. And what is the promise that will uphold us in that? God is with us always. We see it here again. Paul's engagement in making disciples led him to this place. And what do we see? God stood by him. God upheld him. And what might seem like in a situation that's unbearable, much less a place you could have hope, Paul had hope and he remained faithful in the midst of it. And it wasn't because something special in him. You've got to see that. I think we read the Apostle Paul and we think this guy is out of our league. But where does he put the emphasis here? Does he put it on his own willpower? No. The Lord stood by me. He strengthened me. I was upheld in that moment. And this is a good reminder that God's presence is far superior than the alleviation of a hard circumstance. I think our natural bent in America, and maybe this is for all people, but we love comfort and we love safety. And so the natural bent is to think that if I'm going to be upheld, I've got to have the alleviation of a hard, stand, hard circumstance. And Paul's saying here, no. The hard circumstance didn't leave. But God met me in such a powerful way that I could come out of it and say I was rescued. So that's one way we see Paul's rescue here. But we also see the rescue in the form of a future hope of being with God, free from sin and suffering. So verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the ultimate rescue that Paul's speaking of here is that Jesus would be bringing in his kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more sickness, fear, death, suffering, or evil, right? There is no Roman emperor, no soldier. There is no evil deed that could change this reality for Paul. It was more certain, more certain that he would be rescued in the big picture to be in the presence of God than anything else in life. The Lord would rescue him from those things. And this hope had a real power to sustain joy. And so Paul here wasn't looking for the alleviation of a hard circumstance. I mean, it's obvious. He could be saved from death in this moment, correct? Right? He could have been released from prison, saved from death. But would he, would death eventually come? Would hardship eventually come? Yes, it happens to everybody. It's inescapable in this life. And so his, his perspective, though, is that I can endure any hard circumstance and I can be rescued from despair and self-pity and bitterness in that moment because I'm looking for the future rescue. That one day I can endure the cold, I can endure the rejection because I know one day I'll be walking in the warmth of the presence of my Heavenly Father. And that reality alone could sustain Paul. Not because Paul was special, but because God's power is that real and that sustaining. He could take the rejection, he could take this hardship now because his future would be forever free from it. And I think this reminds us here, when we see this kind of rescue, it's easy to think that Christianity is just kind of this good cause or this ideology that we can bear a little of hardship for because it's a good cause. But that's not what Christianity is. Paul's not saying, I can bear this because it's for a good cause. Paul's saying, I can bear this because Christianity is about a person who loves me and who is with me and who is holding me up in this moment. It's about a God who's real and who promises to stand with us and strengthen us. And so Paul was upheld not by willpower or because he was so mature or had a high risk tolerance. He was upheld by God. So we risk and we can risk because we have a God who will rescue us. That's the concluding story 
of 2 Timothy, and that's a summary of all that we've learned so far. And so where do we go from here? Well, the risk for Paul and for Timothy to undergo this mission will be different from the risks of people in America. Um, there are parts around Southeast Asia where guys from that the risks are more like what we're reading in this letter. For a guy and folks to come to Christ in Thailand out of a 95% Buddhist country, there's different risks that they will face than for us. And I like to think of it as a spectrum of risks. But the bottom line is, if you want to engage in this mission where you live, work, or where you play, it will come with risk. And sometimes those risks become a reality. And what I want us to see is that God promises to rescue from each of those things. And so the call for us this morning is to engage in this mission. I specifically want to go and reference what, uh, what Steve talked about here with our goal of missional hospitality. So we've set this, separate, uh, set this corporate goal for 300 hospitality engagements as a church this summer. And what that means is that it's you or I uh, going out in, in our community, we're around our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, whatever it is, people who don't attend Grace, don't go here. And we say, I want to have a shared experience with them. And so that might mean next Friday night you go to Bayou and Brass together or get your families to go picnic together. It may mean you go on a walk this week. It may mean you invite them over for a summer cookout. Whatever it means, you need to do this with other Grace families. All of those things, that's essentially what that is. And so we're doing this because we believe that this rhythm of missional hospitality is critical and foundational to us as a church living on mission. And what it gets excited about this is that these kind of engagements of hospitality, it, it cultivates trust and builds relationship with people around us, right? And it become opportunities for each one of us and as a church to show forth the generous and thoughtful love of Jesus to those around us. That's an exciting thing, but that comes with risk. Now, it can seem a little strange to talk about the risk that we bear in hospitality in America to the risk that Paul bared in engaging the mission where he was, but nonetheless, the risk, and we've got to see that. And so what I want you to think about is I want you to think about the, the risks, or let me phrase it this way. When you think about this goal and about engaging in this and people with where you, where you live, work, and play, what are your hesitancies? What are your worst-case scenarios? What are the things that go to your mind that you're like, I don't really want to do that because? Maybe it's the risk of awkwardness of initiating with someone. Maybe it's the risk of someone saying no to you, right? Maybe it's the risk of an embarrassment. Someone comes to your house and they go use the bathroom and they say pee on the toilet seat from your kid. And you're like, oh my gosh, they're seeing that we're messed up people, right? Maybe it's the risk of conversations that make you feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's the risk of not looking like you have it all together, right? Maybe it's the risk of spending more money or letting your stuff be used up by others. And the reality is, is just the thought of the possibilities of those risks becoming a reality often keep us from engaging with others, keep us from holding back from those kinds of things. And the call for us this morning is to realize those risks and to turn towards them. But I want to encourage you that the way you turn towards them is by fixing your eyes on the one who will rescue you. And I want you to think about this for a moment. If the God of this universe entered into this world to pursue you and I, who weren't his friends but his enemies, and who have sinned against him every day and have been re rebellious hearts against him, and he turned to us, and he entered this world, and he sent his son to bear the wrath that you and I deserve for this sin and rebellion, and he rescued us from our sin, would he not rescue us 
from an awkward conversation? Would he not be enough to bear through a little more sacrifice? Let's say you face a conversation and you don't know how to answer it. Or you face an uncomfortable situation and you don't know what to do. Would the God who entered this world to rescue for all eternity, would his presence be enough for you in that moment? If it was enough for Paul in prison, it's enough for us in those moments. And that's the beautiful reality for us, Grace, that we've got this opportunity to show these acts of love and thoughts of hospitality towards others. And we have a God who will meet us in those very moments, not just to remind us of who he is, but also to show his love to others. And that's the beautiful reality we face. And we want to hear about those. And we want to celebrate those with you. And so you can rest assured that as you risk, the Lord will be with you to rescue you, to stand by you, to strengthen you, to live out this mission. And so I want to finish with the last lines of what we have as the last written words from Paul to Timothy and really from Paul to the whole world. That's a summary of everything we've just said. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Father, we come to you. And I love the beauty of this passage that puts all the emphasis on the reality of who you are and that you will meet us in hard things. God, I, I confess that I, I want a life free of risk. I want a life full of comfort with all my favorite friends and all my favorite food and, and just easy. And God, that's just not the reality of Christianity. That's not the reality that you've called us to. And that's not the reality where we'll actually find hope and peace and security. Where we find hope and peace and security is with you who stand by us. And so, God, as we look at these last words, I pray that you would be with our spirit, that your grace would be with us, that you would move us as a church to look out upon our city and long to show the same love that you've shown us. God, would you guide us and as we think about this? Would you go before us in these discussions that we have? Would you help us think about the people you've placed around us? And would you move us in love towards others who are different than us, who look different than us, different socioeconomic brackets? It doesn't matter, God. Would you move us? And God, would you meet us and would you remind us even this morning as we close in song that you are a God who loves us and who stands by us. And you are God who's prepared a better place for us. It's your name we pray. Amen.